the church into this space, onto the live stream, however you're engaging uh, this first service this morning. Uh, glad to have you with us. If we haven't met, my name's Jamie, one of the pastors of our church. Excited to uh, dive into the scriptures, preach God's word this morning. Um, I think I keep saying this and then outdoing myself uh, when I say this may be the longest sermon of this series. I think I said that a couple weeks ago, and then I said it last week, I believe, if I'm remembering rightly. And um, this is it. This is the longest one. So uh, it's a good thing we don't have announcements this morning because we have a chance to really get after it and uh, still uh, get you out about the same time we normally do. So uh, let me go ahead and pray for us and invite you uh, as we prepare to pray to open up to Luke chapter eight. We'll be in verses 40 through 56 this morning. Um, we will be done with chapter eight by the time we get done, as you'll see as you open up your Bible, which means that we are a third of the way through this incredible book. Uh, we've been working at it since uh, Advent of last year. So roughly what, five months or so? We got two thirds of the book left to go. Uh, if the first third has captivated you, you'll be excited about that. There are many more stories to come. Very few crazier than the one we're gonna dive into this morning though. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you'll be able to track up on the screen behind me with this morning's passage along with any sort of commentary quotes or other verses outside of Luke's gospel account. Uh, let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll dive in. Jesus, what a gift to sit with the Gospels, to see you living and moving and thinking and feeling and acting, and to know that, that when we see you thinking, we see the, the mind of God. When we see you feeling, we see the heart of God. When you, we see you acting, we see the will of God. You're the radiance of the glory of God. You're God incarnate, and we get the beauty and the wonder and the joy of seeing you minister, seeing the heartbeat of heaven, of seeing the story of redemption unfold in your person and work. Surely we will see that this morning. I pray that our hearts would be awakened not only to the wonder of your, your power, your authority, your compassion, your love, your grace, but that we would also be receptive to your timing, Lord. If we're honest, oftentimes we don't like your timing. Oftentimes we buck against your timing. Your timing depresses us at times. It leaves us anxious. And yet, as we'll see in this morning's passage, your perfect timing, which doesn't always measure up with ours, is an opportunity for the maximization of the display of your glory. And so in those moments that we don't love your timing, Lord, we're, if we're honest, we're glory thieves. And so I pray that, that we would find ourselves repenting of that too this morning, trusting in your timing, uh, even if you don't deliver us from sickness and death, but through it. I pray that we would trust you. We would walk away fearing less and believing more as this morning's passage is gonna teach us. Would you do that great work, Holy Spirit, in our hearts, in the name of King Jesus, our Savior and Lord, to the glory of the Father, I pray, amen. So this morning's passage, if you nerd out on things like grammar and literature and history, which helps you to interpret the Bible, this morning's passage presents us with a, a literary technique known in the world of biblical studies as the sandwich technique. 
It's found most frequently in in Mark's gospel account, but certainly seen elsewhere in scripture. Uh, A technique where the author presents the reader with a story within a story so that you have the meat and, and the bread on either side, so to speak. The first story drawing the reader in, only to then interrupt that story with another story, followed by the conclusion of the original story. Intended not only to keep the interest of the, the reader as the second story's interruption of the first story leaves the reader impatiently longing for some sort of resolution, but also intended to help the reader to see the themes that are common to both stories. In the case of this morning's passage, we're gonna encounter two women, young and old, both with severe illnesses, two cases of human efforts and resources to, to bring healing having failed, two encounters of perfect holiness with ceremonial uncleanness, two expressions of faith in Jesus Christ, and two demonstrations of Jesus's divine authority and power. See, all those themes on full display in the sandwich stories of an ailing woman and a dying little girl. If you pick it up in Mark, or excuse me, Luke chapter eight, verse 40, Luke tells us, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. All right, if you were around last week, you'll remember Jesus has just performed the miracle of calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee, followed by the healing of a man possessed by a legion of demons, having been asked by the garrison herdsmen and townspeople to depart from them as they were seized with great fear. Meanwhile, back on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, you have a crowd welcoming Jesus, waiting for his return in eager expectation. Another subtle inclusion on Luke's part in showing the reader, as he has all along, really, the two contrasting responses to Jesus Christ. And Luke goes on to say in verse 41, and there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus's feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. This is surely not the first time in Luke's gospel account that we've encountered a dying person in need of healing, right? Remember Peter's mother-in-law, chapter four, who had fallen ill with a dangerous fever, the likes of which was oftentimes life-threatening in Jesus's day, a fever that Jesus rebuked so that it had no choice but to leave the woman, the healing so comprehensive and complete that Luke tells us that she immediately began to serve Jesus and her family. And then there's the the story of the centurion servant, chapter seven, who was sick and at the point of death, a man whom Jesus healed without ever so much as meeting him, with a word as Jesus commands with an authority that must be obeyed. Jesus said in that case, let there be healing and the man's body responded, you got it, I will now be healed. Just like the stars that came into existence in the beginning, let there be light, you got it, Jesus. Coming back to to this morning's passage, Jesus, Luke tells us, steps back onto the, the dry land of the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, where he's approached by a man by the name of Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, meaning that, that he was responsible for arranging the synagogue services, determining who would pray, who would do the scripture reading, who would even preach. More importantly, more significantly in this story, the father of a dying 12-year-old little girl, Parents' worst nightmare. Yeah, I would gladly trade my life for either of my little girls. This is, this is quite a powerful and intriguing moment as Jesus wasn't known as a man who typically found favor with the religious leaders, but Jairus, at this point in his life, finds himself an incredibly desperate man. 
In the words of one commentator, despair is commonly the prelude to grace. Jairus had done everything he could in his power to help his little girl, but to no avail. Having heard about, perhaps having even seen the evidence of the ministry and miracles of Jesus, who just so happens now to be in the neighborhood. And so Jairus personally seeks out Jesus and falls at Jesus's feet in humble submission and desperation, pleading with Jesus, come to my house, do what only you can do. And we're told, and I love how immediate the response is on Jesus's part, that in and of itself, an act of compassion. And Jesus went. He didn't wrestle through it with Jairus, ask a whole lot of questions. Jesus said, let's go. And people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Right, here's the the second story within the story. Many of us have seen an ambulance try to push through heavy traffic, right? Wondering if it would arrive to its destination on time. And can you imagine the the panic and anxiety that Jairus must have felt as the journey to his house is brought to a screeching halt? The great physician on his way to Jairus' house, presumably to heal the man's dying little girl, and a crowd presses around Jesus as he's bombarded by a sea of people. One of those, Luke tells us, being a woman with an ailment of her own, an ailment that she'd been dealing with for as long as the little girl on her deathbed had been alive a discharge of blood, a severe hemorrhaging. Uh, According to the the law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 15, you can go back and read about this. uh, A woman with a discharge of blood was considered ceremonially unclean. The implication being that not only has this woman been dealing with this ailment itself, having suffered greatly, according to Mark's gospel account of this story, under the many physicians that she had seen and was no better, but rather had grown worse. But also having suffered with the embarrassment and isolation that such an ailment would have brought. Not allowed to enter the temple, not allowed to participate in corporate worship, 12 years of avoiding touching other people. Gosh, you think the last year's been hard. More than a decade of shame, more than a decade of loneliness more than a decade of physical pain, more than a decade of financial hardship, as Luke tells us that this woman has spent everything she has on medical care, only to find that there isn't a physician in the region capable of healing her. Savings account spent. Checking account spent. Very different from Jairus in terms of her place in society, and yet both of them at the end of their ropes, desperate for a hope outside of themselves. You see where this is going, right? Verse 44, when she came up behind him, behind Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now, this is, this is incredible, right? Jesus doesn't speak a word of healing here, nor does he reach out and cleanse the woman with his healing touch, but rather she reaches out to him, which, by the way, it's not the first time we've seen this sort of thing happen in Luke's gospel account. Remember the crowd who sought to touch Jesus, chapter six, verse 19, because power came out from him and was healing them all? In this case, notice that the woman, she doesn't grab Jesus's arm. She doesn't grab him by the ankle, simply the fringe of his garment. I'm reminded of the apostle Paul in the book of Acts, which 
just so happens to be the sequel to the book of Luke, same author, Acts 19, declaring that God was doing such extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. People healed, not by touching Paul, but his used Kleenex. Right, give me some of that Holy Spirit right, power, right? Coming back to, to this morning's passage, a, a woman who had been ailing for years reaches out and touches the fringe of Jesus's garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceases. Just as instantaneously as the fever had left Peter's mother-in-law, chapter four, just as instantaneously as the leper's diseased body had been transformed, chapter five, just as instantaneously also, chapter five, as the paralytic had risen up and carried off the bed that had been carrying him for years. The first hope of a cure for this woman over the course of 12 years that she didn't have to pay for, freely hers through Jesus Christ. It's a picture of salvation, the forgiveness and healing for a world of lost sinners which comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, or in this case, a clinging to Jesus himself. And Jesus said, verse 45, this is where it gets interesting. If it wasn't interesting enough already, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive the power's gone out from me. Right? Put yourself in poor Jairus' shoes. Why are we stopping, Jesus? Who cares who touched you? My baby girl is dying. We don't have time for this. Jesus knows that, that someone's reached out and touched him because he senses that divine power has left him and everyone denies responsibility, which leads Peter in a very impulsive Peter-like way to pipe up. You're surrounded by tons of people, Jesus. Could have been anyone. We're in a mosh pit right now. And Peter's right in the sense that several people have surely pressed in on Jesus. But there's one person in the crowd in a sea of people whose reach and touch was the reach and touch of faith, of empty-pocketed desperation. Verse 47, when the people saw that she was not hidden, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Right, here you have a woman who desperately wanted to go unnoticed, having purposely sought to be discreet, touching the hem of Jesus's garment. Why? We're, we're not told. Perhaps she knew that people would get angry. They knew that she was bringing her ceremonial uncleanness into the crowd. More likely, she probably wanted to avoid the embarrassment of having to publicly disclose her ailment. You ever gone through something that you're embarrassed to ask others to pray for? Ashamed to disclose even with other believers? Scared to bring up in a community group context, maybe? Yes, the woman's been healed after all those years of loneliness and pain, but she's also now been exposed, unable to blend in with the crowd. She comes to Jesus trembling like the disciples on that storm-tossed ship maybe wondering if she had made a mistake, perhaps even wondering if Jesus was gonna take back the cure. 
And she falls before him and she declares in the presence of the crowd her reason for touching Jesus, namely belief that Jesus could bring her the healing that no one else could bring. You might ask, well, why didn't Jesus just let her disappear into the crowd? Let the woman be. I mean, surely he wasn't out to embarrass her after all those years of her having experienced great humiliation. I can think of at least three reasons that that Jesus would draw this woman out of hiding. For one, the glory of God in the public testimony of his saving work. He's worthy of the proclamation of what he's done in our lives. He's done here what no man could do. Second, it's an act of kindness on Jesus's part in restoring this woman to the community from which she had been ostracized. That just as her shame and defilement had become a matter of public knowledge for more than a decade, now her healing and restoration would be a matter of public knowledge that she might be received back into society, that she might be fully restored to her community. And lastly, and here's where the story within a story makes sense. Lastly, this is a gift to Jairus in helping him to trust in Jesus's saving power. He's gonna need it in just a minute, as we'll see. It's an object lesson on faith. That's why verse 48 tells us, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus addresses the woman with a term of endearment in the midst of her trembling. The only, get this, the only woman in all of scripture that Jesus ever calls daughter. After all those years of rejection and humiliation, all those years of loneliness and isolation, in the words of one commentator, Jesus had not called her out to humiliate her after all, but to save her, to heal her, and to love her as God's own dear child. Daughter a term of endearment that Jesus follows with words that that we've seen before in Luke's gospel account. You go back to chapter seven, verse 50. What did Jesus say to the forgiven woman in the house of Simon the Pharisee? Your faith has saved you, go in peace. It's the same exact phrase, word for word verbatim in the original Greek that's used here. Your faith has made you well, go in peace. The the woman in the house of Simon the Pharisee, she was forgiven not because she loved, but rather because she believed. She knew the hopelessness of her debt before God, a, a debt that she could never pay, desperate for mercy, poor in spirit, but she also knew that Jesus is mighty to save, offering forgiveness to the vilest of sinners. In the same way, the woman in this morning's passage was made well because she believed. Philip Ryken in his commentary on this passage says, of course, it was really the power of God in Christ that healed her, but the way she gained access to that healing power was was by reaching out to Jesus with the hand of her faith. However timid she may have been when she touched the corner of his robe, she believed that she could be healed. This was not some kind of magical superstition. It was simple faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This daughter of God trusted Jesus for her salvation and by faith she gained access to his saving power. Again, several people in the crowd had surely touched Jesus, but this woman's reach and touch was the reach and touch of faith. The reward for which was not only her healing, but Jesus' blessing of shalom, go in peace. After all those years of turmoil and anguish, after all those sleepless nights for more than a decade, 
Riken goes on to say, these are blessings that Jesus has for everyone who reaches out to him in faith. He gives us his love, making us the sons and daughters of God. We do not have to hold back alone and afraid, avoiding other people and hardly daring to approach God. No matter what we have done or what we have suffered, Jesus will welcome us into the Father's love with open arms and he will give us his peace, watching over us forever with the benediction of his grace. Within his own person, on the basis of his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus has the power to heal us in all the ways we need to be healed. From sorrow, abandonment, abuse, depression, and the guilt of our sin, and so much more. All we need to do is grab out, is grab hold of him by faith and trust his power to save. But I would say, if I could get the imagery of this morning's passage in, in our minds, if you're not a Christian, Jesus is passing in front of you right now, the only person in whom true forgiveness and healing can be found. The question is, will you reach out and touch him by faith or will you let him pass you by? And if you are a Christian, you know this, that trust in Jesus is not a one-time thing, but rather it's a daily fight in the war to believe so the question for we who are in Christ, will you look to him in faith yet again for the peace, for the love, for the power, for the grace that only he can give? Sounds like a pretty decent ending to a sermon, right? Except that remember, this is a story within a story. There's still the matter of Jairus's dying little girl. If you pick back up in verse 49, while Jesus was still speaking, Luke tells us, someone from the ruler's house, from Jairus' house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Are we gonna make it in time? Is my little girl gonna die? Doesn't Jesus understand the time sensitivity of the situation? Jairus now receiving the news that his little girl has in fact passed away. That the ambulance didn't make it in time. imagine the sorrow that must have flooded his heart as he stood on the receiving end of those gut-wrenching words. His only daughter, a 12-year-old little girl. That'd be the tragic story on any front-page news, right? What could Jesus possibly do now? Send flowers, condolences? Surely no reason to trouble him anymore in terms of his journey to the dying little girl's house. Clearly the posture of Jairus' servant, your daughter is dead, don't trouble the teacher anymore. But, it's one of the greatest words in all of the Bible. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Right, Jairus has just seen Jesus heal a woman who reached out to him with the hand of faith. Jesus now calling Jairus himself to believe, namely that it's never too late for a miracle when it comes to Jesus. I'm reminded of the story of Lazarus, John chapter 11, where Mary and Martha, Martha sinned for Lazarus in the wake of their brother having fallen ill with a, a terminal sickness, knowing that, that Jesus is a dear friend of Lazarus, that he deeply loves him. And Jesus, upon hearing the news of, of Lazarus on his deathbed, does a really strange thing. John chapter 11, verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
That's peculiar. Kind of like allowing a crowd to slow you down on your way to the sick bed of a dying 12-year-old little girl. Or you can just hear the disciples in the story of Lazarus. Hey, Jesus, Lazarus is one of your good buddies, right? He's dying and you're pretty good uh, at just touching people or speaking words. And all of a sudden, dying people aren't dying anymore. So, so what's the plan? You want us to pack up the donkeys and, and get this road trip going? And Jesus' response, of course, I deeply love Lazarus. I love his whole family, in fact. So here's the plan. We're gonna stay right here for two days and then we'll head out. That's weird, right? Please tell me I'm not the only one who thinks that's bizarre. Right? When someone you love experiences something life-threatening, you stop what you're doing and you get in the car. You hop on the plane. Jesus tells the disciples not to tear down camp just yet, but rather to give it a couple days. What is he thinking? What is he doing? We've all thought that with respect to God's timing. It's in the verse prior that we get a glimpse of what Jesus is up to. John 11, chapter four. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Right? Jesus doesn't, doesn't mean that Lazarus' sick, Lazarus's sickness is not fatal. What he means is that Lazarus' death won't have the final word. We introduced our, our daughters to the Princess Bride about a week ago, and then I literally, I think it was three or four days later, in a commentary, saw a quote from that very movie having to do with this passage where you have Wesley saying to Buttercup, death can't stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. Right? Lazarus would die. Jesus would raise him from the dead and Jesus would be glorified through it. Coming back to this morning's passage, right? Jesus could have healed this little girl without so much as entering Jairus' home. Right? We've seen him do it before with the centurion's servant, chapter seven. Instead, Jesus follows Jairus to his home, having just performed a miracle on the journey that demonstrated the power of faith. Again, a gift to Jairus in helping him to trust in Jesus' saving power. Jesus looks into the eyes of Jairus and says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Like the woman who had reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Again, I'll quote Philip Ryken. His commentary on this particular passage is so good. He says, faith and fear always stand in opposition. This means that we have a choice to make. Either we can be afraid of all the things that might go wrong or have gone wrong, or we can trust Jesus to see us through. We face this choice all through life. Am I afraid of what might happen to my children, always fretting about their physical and spiritual safety, or do I entrust them to God's fatherly care? Am I afraid of what people will say if I take a stand for Christ, or do I trust God to vindicate me? Am I afraid of losing everything I own, or do I trust God to provide what I truly need? Am I afraid that I'll never get what I want out of life, or do I trust God to give me the desires of his heart? In every anxious situation, he says, Jesus calls us to trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, for healing from the wounds we've suffered in this ruined world, for the grace to persevere and keep fighting the good fight of faith. Verse 51, 
And when Jesus came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. That that Jesus continues on the journey, that itself is a testimony to Jairus' faith. A journey that that leads them to Jairus' house where the public mourners have already gathered, we're told, to sing a dirge, to weep and lament, joining the family in the sorrow of their loss. And Jesus invites his inner circle, as he does on occasion, of Peter, James, and John into the house along with Jairus and his wife, telling those within earshot not to weep, for the little girl is not dead, but sleeping. What does he mean by that? It's not to say that Jesus himself doesn't believe that the little girl isn't, in fact, really dead. You see this elsewhere, again, in the story of the raising of Lazarus. If you come back to John chapter 11, verses 11 through 15, after saying these things, Jesus said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, synonymous with Lazarus is dead. Coming back to this morning's passage, Jesus is speaking euphemistically here, offering a different perspective on death interpreting death through the eyes of God as if to say that death itself is nothing but sleep when Jesus Christ has you by the hand. Which ironically causes the mourners to laugh. The only people in the entirety of the New Testament said to have laughed at Jesus. Verse 54. Taking her by the hand, the little girl, he called saying, child, arise, And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, just like Lazarus came forth out of the tomb. And he directed that something should be given her to eat, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. Jesus takes the little girl by the hand, his second back-to-back encounter with ceremonial uncleanness, the woman with the blood discharge being the first, now reaching out and touching a corpse, two acts that would have made anyone ritually unclean, like the touching of a leper, except with Jesus, as we've talked about before in this series, that whole thing works the other way around. And Jesus commands the child to arise, just like he had the widow of Nain's son, chapter seven, and the little girl's spirit returns to her body, a detail that Luke includes to make clear that this truly was the raising of a little girl from the dead. And she gets up at once, as if having awakened from an enchanted curse, because Jesus Christ, as John tells us, is the resurrection and the life who breathes life into dead places. And Jesus, because he's not just a God of power, but a God of compassion and care, makes sure that the little girl's fed, caring for her most basic needs in the wake of one of his uh, greatest miracles and acts of power. And he charges her parents, filled with amazement, to tell no one what had happened. Why? We, We don't really know. I mean, Many scholars believe that his aim was that the the little girl's parents focus on her needs, that it wasn't necessary for them to immediately run out into the community and tell everyone what Jesus had done for for them and for her. Kent Hughes in his commentary says, 
This is the capstone to a trio of episodes meant to teach us the comprehensive power of Jesus. Amid the towering walls of water on a storm-tossed sea, Jesus cried out, be muzzled, and the sea instantly lay flat. Confronted with a pathetically demonized man, the spirits pled with Jesus not to send them into the abyss, but he did with a word, first through the swine and then to the eternal pit. He is the God of nature and supernature. But, Hughes says, he is also the God of timing and space, of all providence. In the healing of the woman and the raising of a child, we see him initiating and elevating human faith. Jesus can do anything. He is sovereign. Nothing is too great for him. He can save your soul. He can restore your life. He can supply your greatest and most desperate need. So I would ask us this morning, where, where do you turn when you're at the end of your rope? when the sorrows of this world come knocking at your door, when the waves of circumstance come crashing down on you. Do not fear, Jesus says, only believe and all will be well. If you're not a Christian, again, I invite you to believe in Jesus for the first time. He's the only one in true, whom true forgiveness and healing can be found, the one who breathes life into dead places. And if you are a Christian, I invite you to believe in Jesus for the hundredth time, for the thousandth time, for the 10,000th time. Trusting in him for the peace, for the love, for the power, for the grace that only he can give. The one who stares at even the great enemy of death and sees it as the enchantment of sleep before the final resurrection. Because with Jesus, even death itself is not the end. Right, I would imagine many of us coming into this place this morning might struggle with a story like this. As you look out on the, the landscape of your own life and those you love, and you don't see the kind of deliverance that you see in this morning's passage. The truth is, if I can remind us, that Jairus' daughter would go on to die again. Make no mistake about it. But so would Jesus on behalf of wayward sinners. He himself delivered not from death, but through death. And that like Jesus, we might not be spared from pain and death. That might not be our story. Go read the, the, the list of those in Hebrews 11. Some of them shut the mouths of lions. Some of them were sawn in two. And the author of Hebrews said they were all commended for their faith. The Christian knows deep down in, in the, the depths of their being and their soul that we may not be spared from pain and death, but we also know that on the other side of every cross is the hope of glory, future resurrection, the kind that can't be undone. So I would simply leave us with the words of Jesus this morning. Do not fear, only believe. Believe.